So we're starting a new series today. We're, we're starting a series that we're going to be in uh, through Easter, and we're calling it Witness. And what we're going to do is, is take a look at uh, the points of view of a number of people who interact with Jesus on his last days before his trial and his crucifixion. Um, and we're specifically doing that through the framework of two chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew 26 and 27. Jesus intersects with a variety of different people. And what we want to do is, is look at how they react to Jesus and, and how they respond to what's going on in his life, who they are, what's the significance for Jesus and for us. And then here's the deal. The question that I want to keep coming back to all series long is, where am I in this text? Where am I in this person that we're looking at? And today we're going to start off with a guy named Caiaphas. And uh, as Jackson read, he was the chief priest. And there's a group of high priests, and Caiaphas is the chief of everybody. And what we're going to do is take a look at, at how he uh, perceives and interacts with Jesus, how he responds to him. And then I want to kind of just see, well, why is that important? Where does it come from? And then ultimately get to the question of like, okay, why does it matter to me? And, and most importantly, how can I identify with Caiaphas? You know, I think it's the most important thing we can do is when we, when we don't just look at the Bible as uh, stories that we read about, but we say, where can I connect with the people in the Bible and how can I find myself in the story? So that's where we're going and as Jackson read, there's, Jesus finishes his public ministry, and then he tells his disciples, look, uh, the human one, the son of man, that's what Jesus called himself a lot, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to eventually be crucified. And then at that point, we're told right after that, that uh, Caiaphas and the high priest sit around and they start saying, okay, like, how do we take care of this guy, Jesus? And it tells them, like, they, they want to arrest him, and then it just lays the cards on the table. They want to kill him. Okay? So part of this is just, like, starting, like, where does that come from? Who are these guys, and where does it come from? And then uh, I want to bounce to a little bit later in the chapter, and we're just going to watch Caiaphas. He kind of comes on the scene again. This is his central part of the story in Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. This is after Jesus was arrested. And, and if you don't know the story and you don't know the culture, what has to happen is that he sort of has a Jewish trial in front of the religious authorities, and then he has a Roman trial with the civic authorities. The Romans governed this land. And so what you're going to see is, uh, is essentially uh, the, the, the Jewish proceedings. So verse 57, those who arrested Jesus uh, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the legal experts and the elders had gathered there. Uh, Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. He followed him from a distance until he came to the high priest's courtyard. And he entered that area and sat outside with the, off with the officers to see how everything was going to turn out. The chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could what? Put him to death. They didn't find anything they could use from the many false witnesses who were willing to come forward. But finally, they found two. In Jewish law, you had to have two witnesses. 
It was written into the, the, the fabric of their society. Had to be two witnesses. They finally found two who agreed. And they said, this man said, referring to Jesus, I can destroy God's temple and I can rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood and said to Jesus, aren't you going to respond to the testimony these people have brought against you? Jesus was silent. The high priest said, by the living God, I demand that you tell us whether you are the Christ, Messiah, Savior, the leader they were waiting for, God's son. You said it, Jesus replied, but I say to you that from now on, you'll see the human one sitting on the right side of the Almighty and coming on the heavenly clouds. Right here, what's happened is that Jesus basically equates himself with God and the high priest just freak out, they lose it. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he's insulting God. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you've heard his insult against God. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves to die. And then they spit in his face and they beat him and they hit him and said, prophesy for us, Christ, who hit you? <sighs> That's the part that seals essentially uh, Jesus' progression to the Romans who eventually crucify him. And, and again, uh, we're told that at some point Jesus says, look, you'll see me, you'll see the human one at the right side of God. And then the priests, they're like, he's insulting God. They tear their robes. But we're also told that before this, you know, we started off the day. By this time, they had already decided they wanted to arrest and kill him. And so again, what I want to do is take a step back and say, who are the priests and why did they want Jesus dead? And so uh, um, here we go. Who were the priests? Um, a great image for you to uh, wrap your head around is that like the, the priests were the gatekeepers ultimately of the most important parts of Jewish life. They were the gatekeepers. They were the door bouncers. When I was uh, in my 20s, I lived in Dallas, and there was a, the best club in Dallas was a club uh, named Club Dada, and uh, they had a bouncer, um, and his name was Beard, because uh, he had a beard, and, um, and uh, he was a great bouncer, though. But the bouncers are in charge, like, look, we need to make sure that nobody gets in the club that's not supposed to be in the club. They're the gatekeepers. And the priests and the high priests were the gatekeepers of Jewish Life. Let me show you a picture of what they look like. Um, this is a, a picture, an image of what the robes of the high priest would look like. And there's a significance to everything about their outfit. Everything about their outfit is, is described in the scriptures in the Old Testament, the First Testament. Uh, and there is meaning and symbolism in everything that's on their body. From this little gold thing with these gemstones or on, their, on their chest these things on their shoulders, the, the crown or turban on their head. And, the, and it's that way, primarily in part, let me put a thought in your head, that remember the Bible is written over uh, 2,000, starting 2,000 years ago and before that. It's an old book. And in the ancient world, uh, people's minds did not work the same as the 21st century mind. And the Bible is also written for a population of Eastern people, the Middle East. And that 
psychologists would tell you Eastern people think different than Western people do, and ancient people think differently than modern people do. And ancient people thought in terms of image and picture. And modern Western people think in terms of proposition, definition, statements, philosophy. And so uh, when, when God starts telling people who they are, you'll find over and over in the Bible, it's like he makes it real. He makes it an image. Even down to the clothes that people wear, God says, this tells a story about me. This says who I am. The central question that God's people have in their journey, there's actually two questions. And I would say it's simply this, like, where is God and what's he like? Where is God and what's he like? Where is he at? How do I know that there's a God? And the priesthood arises out of these two questions. Because in the book of Exodus, at one point, God tells his people, build me uh, a tent, which is pretty heavy to get an instruction from God. Like, how are you going to make that tent look really nice? God says, build me a tent. It's called the tabernacle. And the, the tabernacle is meant to literally be the dwelling place of God. God says, this is where my presence will be. And it's going to be in the center of all the tribes of Israel. And so in answer to this question, like if the tabernacle's over here and you're in a tribe that's like camped out over here and someone's like, you're having a conversation, you're like, hey, uh, how do I know there's a God? They go, because he's right over there in the tent. How do I know that there's a God? God says, let me show you. Let me make it real for you. And the tabernacle has very specific instructions and the priests are in charge of keeping the tabernacle running. So how do I know there's a God? Well, he's over there and those, those guys in the blue robes, they're in charge of making it, of keeping it going and moving it. Well, what's he like? Well, like he's kind of pretty special. And let me show you a picture of like the inside of, of the temple and the tabernacle. Uh, there's a curtain in the middle of, of this room. And in the middle and behind that temple is this box. You see it kind of over on the left-hand side of the picture. That's the Ark of the Covenant. If you don't know what that is, let me just put it this way. That is the specific literal place where God's presence is understood to be. How do I know there's a God? He's behind the curtain. And nobody gets to go in there except the priests. What's he like? He's pretty special. You can't just walk up to this God. Only the priests can go in. And eventually we're told, actually, only the high priest can go behind the curtain. And he goes once a year. It's pretty important what he goes in there for. It's called the Day of Atonement. Because I think it's real easy for us to get caught up. It's like, oh, he's... God's unapproachable. You can't go in there unless you're the high priest. But on the day of atonement, the high priest goes in there to the Holy of Holies. Only he can go in there. He has to wear a bell on his feet. So in case he falls over dead, they know the bell's not moving anymore, but they're hauling back out. It's scary stuff. But then the priest comes out and he essentially reminds the people, your sins are taken care of. So how do I know there's a God? Oh, he's in the tent. What's he like? Well, he's kind of special, but he forgives sins because we know it. We do it every year. We're reminded. The high priest goes in. The high priest goes in. 
but they're the gatekeepers. I don't know if you know this or not, but the high priest is a family. It's a family. You can't like get into the priesthood by like great grades or if you're really an awesome person, it is a lineage of people. And, and in fact, if you ever know anybody with the name Cohen, C-O-H-E-N is the way we would spell it in, in the States, that is a priestly name. All the way back to the First Testament, a Cohen is literally the lineage of priests. They may be Jewish, they may not be. But that's who they are. You don't test into the priesthood, you don't aspire to the priesthood, you're born to it. And I don't know if you guys ever think about this, but if you got a role that's that big of a gatekeeper role and you get born into it, certain things tend to happen over generations. And that is, most of the time, you get to start feeling pretty special about yourself. And you tend to take that role pretty seriously and you tend to maybe even get a little bit wealthy because of it, because you're the gatekeeper. Nobody comes to God except through me. They were also the gatekeeper between people. So there were diseases in the Old Testament. You, they were, you know, leprosy was something, it was real. And, and they took it so seriously. And if somebody got sick, you couldn't, you had to go away from the community and you couldn't come back to the community until a priest said you could. They were the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers. And by this time in Jesus' world, they were powerful and they were, don't, don't transfer this to our world, they were conservative because they had a lot of money and a lot of power. And last time I checked, once you get a lot of money and a lot of power, you tend to not want to give it up, amen? So, this is who Jesus is, is interacting with. This is who they are. Now, why? Why do they have it out for him? Why? The funny thing about it is, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, the priests aren't really there for most of the story. Jesus has these awesome debates and arguments with other Jewish leaders, but most of them are not priests. They're the Pharisees. They're the, the people they call the scribes. Oh, man, he does not like the scribes. They're like lawyers, so sorry if you're a lawyer, but Jesus didn't like you then. But the priests, they kind of just are absent until all of a sudden they show up and they want to kill him. Except there's two little glimpses of what might be their motivation. So if you have your Bible, you want to flip back to Matthew chapter 8. This is where uh, I think it starts. Remember, the, gates, the priests are the gatekeepers between, other, between people and between God. You can't come into the holy holies. Only the priest can do this. Only the priest. So in, in Matthew 8, verse 1, Jesus comes down off this mountain. He's just been teaching uh, his disciples about his way of life. A man with a skin disease came and kneeled before Jesus and said, uh, Lord, if you want, you can make me clean. There's only one problem with this. Jesus does not have the last name Cohen. Jesus is not a priest. He doesn't come from the right family. So strictly speaking, Jesus can't do this if he was just obeying the rules. But Jesus, yeah, 
He's not so big on rules sometimes. Jesus reached out his hands and touched the man saying, I do want to become clean. Instantly, his skin disease was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, don't say anything to anyone. Instead, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded. This will be a testimony to them. Now, I want to just uh, real briefly bounce back or bounce over to a different gospel and show you the same story that really highlights a different aspect of this. So if you know, uh, the Gospel of Mark is just a little bit to the right of Matthew. We're going to look at Mark 1. It's the exact same story. Mark records a, a couple different phrases. So this is the way it reads in Mark chapter 1. A man with a skin disease approached Jesus, fell to his knees, and begged. Same thing. If you want, you can make me clean. And then my text says, incensed, angry. You might have a translation that says filled with compassion. The problem is it's the same Greek word. It can mean two things. So some say, hey, he had compassion. Some say he was angry. Well, why would he be angry? Jesus uh, reaches out to the man, touches him and says, I do want to. You can be clean. Instantly the skin disease left him and he was clean. Sternly, Jesus sent him away saying, don't say anything to anyone. Instead, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifice for your cleansing that Moses commanded. This will be a testimony to them. So what happens here? Who are the priests? They're the gatekeepers between the people and God and the people and each other. So if a person has a skin disease, where do they need to go to be restored to the community? They need to go to the priests in the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, how about we just do away with that? How about, how about you don't need to go to a special place, to a special person to be restored and made whole? I think what Jesus is angry about is the fact that human beings are being made to jump through hoops to be restored back into a community. And I think he's angry at the whole system. I think actually that this man has already been to the priest and I think the priest said no. And I think Jesus says, I'll do it. And I tell you what, once I do it, why don't you go back to the priest and tell them? And so what's the guy gonna do? Um, I, he goes to the priest in Jerusalem. Hey, guess what? I'm clean. What is the priest gonna say? We didn't make you clean. Who made you clean? The guy's gonna say, oh, this rabbi up in Galilee did it. And the priests are gonna say, oh, really? And I think that's what puts Jesus on the radar screen because nobody takes away that gatekeeper's right from us. We're the ones who get to say when people are okay. Because once you got power, you don't want to give it up. And that's the first time Jesus pokes the bear. But then he whacks the bear with a stick in Matthew chapter 21. So we're going to flip back over there. So Jesus has come to Jerusalem. And he's walking around. And he's, and he's come to the temple once. The temple, let me just tell you this. The temple is 
Uh, you ever heard of the phrase Temple Mount? The temple in Jerusalem literally sits on a mountain. Now listen to these words. Early in the morning as Jesus was returning to the city, Jerusalem, he was hungry. He saw a fig tree on the road. The fig tree, by the way, was a symbol of Jewish leadership. But when he came to it, he found nothing except leaves. Then he said to it, you'll never again bear fruit. And the fig tree dried up all at once. It's like a visual teaching. Jesus is like, this is how bad it's gotten with the leadership of the people. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed. How did the fig tree dry up so fast? Jesus responded, I assure you that if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, you will even say to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the lake and it will happen. Now, I always heard that as a statement on prayer. Anybody ever hear it that way? If you have enough faith, say to a mountain, move. I'm not an English teacher, but there's one little problem with that. It's, it's the word T-H-I-S. Because Jesus doesn't say, you'll say to a mountain. He says, you'll say to what mountain? This mountain. Where does the temple sit? On a mountain. You want to know why the priests are mad at Jesus? Because Jesus says, eventually, the whole basis for your existence, this temple at which you become the gatekeepers to controlling people's access to God and access to themselves, Jesus says, actually, you can do away with the whole thing because something bigger and better than the temple is here. And when you take away a gatekeeper's, access, a gatekeeper's ability to control who gets in the club, they don't like that too much. And Jesus comes up and says, you know what? You don't need to go to the temple anymore to be restored. You don't even need to necessarily be jumping through hoops anymore because guess what? God loves you. God loves you. And furthermore, the whole idea about coming to a place and, and, and watching rituals happen. Rituals are important, but never, never mistake the ritual for the reality. You could do away with the temple and God still loves you. You could say this mountain. Out of here, mountain. Because something better is here. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus says, look at me if you want to see God. And I think when the priests hear that, Oh, wait a minute. He's taken away our ability to be the gatekeepers. That's when they're like, well, we'll take care of him. Because nobody, nobody messes with our understanding of who God, of who we think God is. And nobody takes away our ability to control who's in and who's out. I think that's the essence. If you come back to the statement I said, uh, how do I know there's a God and what's he like? When the story starts off, it's like, well, we know there's a God because there's this thing called the temple and there's this thing called the tabernacle. What's he like? Well, he's special, but he's a forgiving God. By the time Jesus gets around, you say, how do I know there's a God? Well, I would say, you look at the way Jesus lives his life. What's he like? I don't know. He hangs out with a lot of questionable people. And he tells them that the kingdom of God's right here, right now. And you can live in it. 
that you can step into it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. Blessed are the losers and the priests and anybody in control about saying who's in the club and out of club are never going to like that. So where are we in this story? Hey, we don't have any blue like robes and I don't wear a turban and I don't have like a thing you know, with the gemstones of the 12 tribes of Israel. But you know what? I'm a little bit more like a priest than I let on being. Because I can tell you in my life, I like to think that I know who's in the club and who's out of the club. I think I have some issues of control about, you know what, God, whatever you do, God, do not ever, God, impinge on my, uh, on my uh, claim to know exactly who you are and what you're up to. And God says, no, 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 don't forget that I'm God. And I'll say, but God, I've got this, this system of belief and, and I get to know who's in the club and who's out and who's holy and who's, and who's not so holy. And God says, just look at Jesus. Jesus says you could throw the whole operation into the ocean. Why? Because there's something better. I'm not Jesus, and neither are you. None of us are God. And I think whenever I start thinking that um, I can draw the boundary lines, that's a problem. And I think there's one other aspect of this, and that is the idea that you see, like I said, don't ever confuse the ritual with reality. Like, I get it, man. The sacrificial system was a reminder of who God is. You know, you sacrifice something. It's important. But I think it gets twisted into performance. And I don't know if you're like this anywhere. Like, if you've ever been like, well, I, uh, I don't feel like I've been doing very good with my life right now. I feel like I've maybe not been... Uh, very loving or very compassionate, and I really need God to, to like me, so, oh man, I'm gonna give him the full kneeling prayer. So like, if I kneel down, and, and oh man, and, and maybe, you know, oh, it hurts on my knees, and God, this will be enough for you, right, God? Like, if I pray like this, God? And, oh, what if I pray like this, God? And what if I do all these things, God, to show you how well I can perform for you and how much I can give to you, God? And then you'll like me, God. And Jesus says, it don't work that way. Grace is grace. And this can't make God love me any more or any less. Standing, kneeling, it's grace. And when I think that I can show God how much I can sacrifice for him, guess, guess who might as well have the turban on his head and the blue robe? Me and you. Because it's grace. It's grace. Perform for God or not, it's grace. It's love. Something better than the temple came. And I don't know about you, but my gosh, I am grateful for that. Amen? So uh, what I want to do each week is to kind of like help us identify with where we are these uh, characters. And there's a tradition in the church called confession. Confession really just means to agree. And so I wrote a confession for us to read together. And, 
and uh, I'm going to come down here because guess what? I'm just a person like you. And we're going to read this confession together as just an act to say, like, I got these things inside of me. These are not just people in a book that's, that's over. This is my life too. So, and then the band's going to lead us in a response song. So why don't we stand together? And we're going to read these words. All right, let's do this. God, we confess to you the ways that we see ourselves reflected in Caiaphas and the priests in the temple. We acknowledge that we tend to feel threatened when you ask us to sacrifice and surrender our security. Forgive our lack of faith and help us in our weakness. We also confess that we can be small-minded and put you in boxes that feel safe to us. We remember and acknowledge now that you are bigger than our containers that we build to hold you. You are free, powerful, and passionate about bringing your children home to your love, guidance, and restoration. Thank you for your love and mercy. Amen.